Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 25, as we bring to a conclusion our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 20. There we read, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. As the writer of Hebrews concludes his letter, uh, we see that he concludes with uh, closing personal remarks and also with a benediction. In fact, uh, your copy of Scripture probably has a title just above the section uh, over verse 20 that says benediction. And so what is a benediction? Well, it actually means good word. And all the New Testament letters include a benediction at the end. Some are longer, some are shorter. And uh, what they are are prayers to God on behalf of the readers. They are a sure word of blessing upon Christ's church. And for many of us, you know, the benediction at the end of, of our worship service is one of the high points of the worship service as you and I hear again the promise of God's blessing upon his church. And so for the benediction, uh, I raise my hands at the end of the service and I recite one of uh, two passages. The first is either Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. It's known as the Aaronic Blessing. It reads, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the other benediction is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. That the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I, I like the benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 because it is explicitly a Trinitarian. And so when we think about the benediction at the end of the service and even at the end of the letter to the Hebrews, it's important for us to understand that, you know, it's not just a formal way of concluding our service or concluding a letter, but the benediction actually has a biblical basis because it is God's sure promise of blessing upon you and upon me, upon his people. You know, in the Old Testament, the high priest uh, would pronounce such a blessing. In fact, the benediction from Numbers chapter 6 that I just read was given by God to Aaron, Aaron who was Israel's first high priest. And God instructed Aaron through Moses how he was to bless the nation. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who is our great high priest, he pronounced a benediction upon his people, upon his disciples before his ascension. We read in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, and Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so you see this pattern throughout the scriptures of of how those people that God appointed were people through whom God blessed his church. And the Lord continues uh, to do this through pastors, through ordained men who minister in his name. So the benediction at the end of the service is not just wishful thinking. It's not just, well, I hope that the Lord blesses you. But what it is, is it's a sure word from God, that God through Christ blesses you, that God through Christ will bless his people. The benediction at the end of the service, and in this case at the end of this letter, is God's final word. It's a promise that he is gracious toward us and that he is present with us as we are sent out into the world. It is God's sure word that we have his blessing upon us as we seek to do his will in the world. And so as we look at the benediction here in Hebrews chapter 13, we see that it begins with an assurance of peace. It begins with an assurance of peace. We see in verse 20, the writer of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace. And the peace that he is referring to here is primarily the peace of the gospel, the peace that Jesus established between believers and God through his cross. Because as we look at the scriptures, we understand, do we not, that we are not born into a state of peace with God. That is not our natural state. The Bible says that we are born enemies of God because of our sin. We are born as aliens and strangers to God, that outside of Christ we're separated from God because of sin apart from Christ. The Bible says that we are objects of wrath. And even in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says when he's speaking about how Christ has reconciled us to God, he says that Christ did this while we were enemies. That was our natural state outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no reconciliation with God. There is no peace with God. And, you know, in this world that we live in, in this world, there are so many people who are seeking after peace, political peace. They're seeking after peace of mind. But they don't realize that the most important thing is to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because... We were, if we were to have all the luxuries in the world, all the comforts in the world, and if we were to somehow experience political stability throughout the world, in a sense experience some kind of utopia here on this earth, and yet God was still our enemy, we would have nothing. Because all of that worldly stuff we know perishes, right? It is our relationship with God that is eternal. And that relationship will either be defined 
by his wrath bearing down on us eternally? Or, for those who trust in Christ, it will be defined by peace, by shalom, as the older Old Testament says, for those who turn from their sins and who trust in Christ. Right? See, this is one of the problems with Israel in the Old Testament. Um, we read in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13, uh, that Israel broke her covenant with God through her sin and idolatry. Um, and the prophet Jeremiah says, For from the least to the greatest of them, as he is receiving the word from the Lord, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. We see that God condemned Israel not only for their wayward lives, but especially for their idolatry and their false worship. Then we read in Jeremiah chapter 6, just a few verses later in verse 20, the Lord says, your burnt offerings... Your worship is not acceptable, nor your sacrifice is pleasing to me. Israel, even though they were living in sin, they believed that by merely making offerings and sacrifices, even though their hearts were not right with God, that God was somehow still pleased with only their outward worship. And the problem was that not only was Israel going through the motions and not worshiping God from their hearts, but the problem was that Israel's prophets were there overseeing what was going on, and they were affirming the nation's behavior. They were assuring Israel at that time that God was pleased with them. But God said that the prophets and priests, the leaders of Israel at that time, were actually giving his people false hope. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Why wasn't there true peace between the people and God? Because there wasn't true faith in the hearts of many in Israel. And because of that, God brought judgment upon Israel through the Babylonians. We read the warning of coming judgment later on in Jeremiah chapter 6. The judgment is spoken of in this way. Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. See the judgment is coming upon the people of God because they have forsaken the Lord. Loved ones, the gospel of Jesus Christ assures us that we have peace with God if we come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a false peace, but it is true peace. Why? Why can we have peace with God through Jesus Christ? We see in verse 20, our second point this morning, we have it on the basis of Christ's blood. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 20, that we have this peace by the blood of the eternal covenant. See, the ground of peace, the foundation, is the redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we know from the Bible that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if we are all sinners, and we are all born enemies of God, what is it then that can make us clean, that can wash us of sin? So we might have that peace with God. And as the hymn says, it is nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is very clear in the scriptures. It's very clear throughout the Bible. In fact, in the upper room, on the night when he would be betrayed, we know that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and that was the first Lord's Supper. And we read that in that small room, as Jesus was there with his disciples, Jesus took a cup and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why did he say, this is my blood of the covenant? Well, because the penalty for breaking our covenant with God was death. And on the cross, Jesus would pay the penalty for our sin by shedding his blood. And so by saying that he would be poured out in this way, he was saying that he would pay the penalty for our sin, that penalty would be placed upon him. Loved ones, this is why Jesus here in Hebrews chapter 13 is referred to as our shepherd. As we read here in this benediction in Hebrews, and what makes him our shepherd, our great shepherd? It's the fact that he laid down his life in order to give us eternal life. He shed his blood in order to secure the blessings of our eternal covenant with God. Now, Jesus said this of himself before he went to the cross. As we read in John chapter 10, he said that he is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. That's significant. Think about the wording there in John 10. Because what he is indicating is that his death is a voluntary death. See, he is willingly laying down his life for his people. It's not being taken from him. He's not being forced to do it, but there is a willingness on his part as he has covenanted with God the Father and God the Spirit in accomplishing our redemption. Jesus says there in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, by faith in Christ, by faith in our good shepherd, We have peace with God on the basis of his blood. And now we see that this peace is confirmed by his resurrection. Our third point, that this peace that we have is confirmed by Christ's resurrection. As we see in Hebrews 13, verse 20, that Jesus is the one who, through the Father, was brought again from the dead. He was raised by the Father. The Bible says that on the cross, he willingly undertook 
the humiliation and suffering that was rightly ours because of sin. We know that. And that on the cross, as he was bearing the weight of our sin upon himself, it wasn't so much the agony of the nails and the punishment that he received beforehand, but it was the agony of him bearing the wrath of God, the suffering that came with it that was so intense that it ultimately killed him. Jesus, we read in the Gospels, we read so clearly in the New Testament, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But loved ones, we know that the story doesn't end that way because he rose again from the dead. That's what we confess in the Nicene Creed, confessed it this morning, that Jesus for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. Then we confess that he suffered, that he was buried, and the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. We confess that. We believe that. It's what the Bible teaches us. And the resurrection, therefore, is proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ because he raised him up on the third day, and then he exalted Jesus at his right hand. See, loved ones, had Jesus not been raised from the dead, had he remained in that grave, if his body was still somewhere in Jerusalem in some unknown tomb at this moment, one theologian says, if that were to be the case, Jesus' death would have been just one more in a long sequence of sacrifices which cannot take away sins. The Apostle Paul says it this way, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, my faith, is futile, and we are still in our sins. See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, we are living a lie. We believe in a hoax. We are still in our sins, and that means we ultimately have no hope of eternal life. We have no peace. But in fact, says Paul, Christ has been raised from the dead. He was raised on the third day. He ascended to the Father. And we know that there, at the right hand of the throne of God, he rules and reigns. And from there, he will return to judge both the living and the dead. That resurrection and that ascension evidence of the Father's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. And the good news is not only that Christ has been raised, but all those who believe and trust in him will also be raised like him on the last day. The Apostle Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See, Christ's resurrection guarantees, loved ones, that you and I will be raised bodily just like he was. So we have peace with God. We have it by the blood of Jesus. It's confirmed in his resurrection. And we see here, fourthly, it is also 
revealed in our lives. We have new life now. I'm going to read the benediction one more time from Hebrews chapter 13 to see how this fourth point uh, follows after the first three, beginning at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The writer of Hebrews is underlining the fact that we have new life now, that the bonds of sin have been broken by Christ, by the power of his cross. See, he has freed us, loved ones, from the penalty of sin by taking the curse upon himself, and he has freed us from the power of sin. Sin no longer reigns in our mortal bodies. Sin is no longer master over you and me. As one writer says, in the Christian life, though some sin remains, no sin reigns. We now have a new master. It's no longer sin, but now it is Christ, loved ones. As we look at this text, this benediction in Hebrews, we see that it is Trinitarian through and through. You and I have peace with God the Father, Peace is given to us through Jesus Christ, and we are now at this very moment being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the gospel, that God is working in us at this very moment to will and to do according to his good pleasure, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He has saved us, loved ones, through Christ, and he is sanctifying us by his word and his spirit. And so as we consider the importance of this benediction, the idea of a benediction within a worship service, you know, sometimes as we draw the service to a conclusion, one of the things that we might be in danger of is falling into a kind of repetition, just going into autopilot, and so when you hear the benediction, it's just another thing that the pastor says before uh, church gets out. And so I want to remind us this morning about the importance of it, not just in the worship service, but the importance of what it means for you and I to be blessed by the Lord, to receive a blessing from God, to be reminded, loved ones, that the only reason that you and I can receive blessing is because Christ bore our curse. We read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Apostle Paul there says very clearly that Christ became a curse for us. The curse of sin that was upon you and me, that sentence of death and judgment, sentence of 
of wrath was upon us, Christ took that upon himself. And it wasn't because he sinned. It wasn't because he deserved it. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who willingly bore that curse for us. The curse-bearing nature of his death is made even more evident when Paul cites there in Galatians chapter 3, he cites from Deuteronomy chapter 21, the verse, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul is referring to the fact that in Israel, in the Old Testament, those who were guilty of a capital offense were put to death most often by being pelted with rocks. And if the offense was particularly bad, particularly wicked, he was then hanged on a post or a tree as a mark of his cursedness for all to see. And so when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the wooden tree that the Romans devised to, we know, to humiliate their prisoners and to maximize suffering, those Romans were doing more than they realized because, if you consider it, by the providence of God, they were fulfilling the scriptures. So, loved ones, as Christ hung on the cross that day, as he hung there suspended between the earth and the sky, that awful transaction occurred. When the Father placed upon the Son the punishment and wrath and curse for sin, Christ suffered the pains of hell in order to satisfy the justice of God. See, loved ones, he received the malediction. He received the curse so that you and I might receive the benediction, so that you and I might receive the blessing. And the good news gets even better. Because not only did Christ take the curse upon himself, thereby allowing us to receive peace and blessing, but we know that he also gives us his righteousness so that we might be able to stand before God, not only not guilty, but we might be able to stand before God in the Son and receive all the blessings that come by faith in him. So we join the writer of Hebrews and with the church throughout the ages, saying in response, all praise and all glory be to him.